favorite medical podcasters did um, a little while ago and uh, his name is Scott Weingart he's a uh, emergency medicine intensivist um, and he does a lot of work on resuscitation um, and ECMO as well especially in the ED so uh, I'm gonna play this talk and kind of stop it every now and then and react to it from a nurse's perspective uh, and kind of give my my thoughts on it. So this is a talk that he did on uh, new guidelines that he's presenting for intra-arrest management or uh, management of a patient during cardiac arrest or what a lot of us know as code blues. So a lot of these things are pretty cutting edge and things that you don't see in ACLS and there's a reason for that. So I'm going to go ahead and play the talk now, and uh, we'll discuss it as it goes. So, I'm going to talk to you about the new version of intra-arrest management. I was going to talk to you about post-arrest, and then, unfortunately, the TTM trial was published and screwed up everything. And I've only done three cases at 36, and I refuse to talk about anything that I don't feel a true mastery of. So, I changed topics, and we're going to talk about intra-arrest instead. And I feel we've now gotten to the point of true cookbook medicine and I'm not happy with it so this I really agree with him Um, ACLS has kind of become like he says like a cookbook in a way and um, people just apply the same concepts to every patient and while it works when there's uh, no further trained individuals running the code um, it does not make sense to be using the same algorithms in a facility that has access to um, intensivists 24 seven. So I think that's where we need a change because not only do the algorithms not work for everybody, every patient's different. Every patient's uh, uh, chief complaint is different. The reason they came into the hospital. So um, the reason they coded, these are all different factors that kind of, will tell you how to approach a code and things that could ultimately uh, save someone's life uh, instead of going through the algorithms and when the algorithms don't work, uh, just giving up. I have perpetrated the same catchphrase of all that matters is good CPR, early div-fib, and post-arrest cooling. And what I realize, as I have said this on the podcast a number of times, it means I've closed my mind off to any possibility of other things. It's the negative thinking that Rich was talking about. That I've basically induced in myself a sense of nihilism for other therapies, where like no drugs work, nothing else is out there, all that matters is you pump hard on the chest. And it's been further perpetrated by courses like ACLS and the similar varieties across the world. And this is a course that's created by good people, but the course is bound by what's easily doable and not what's possible. And like I said before, this is 
mainly done so that providers, uh, not even mid-levels, but, you know, uh, nurses, uh, even RTs, if they are ACLS certified, can actually run a code without a doctor present. Um, so with that, you have to be able to present some algorithms that are in the scope of uh, healthcare providers in that area. So uh, you can't necessarily have a uh, nurse intubate. You can't necessarily have a nurse put in an A-line. All these things are kind of what needs to happen in a code uh, for correct management to happen. And so like he's saying, these algorithms are uh, perpetrated for the providers that uh, don't have the skill set to actually do these advanced techniques. And when you think about it, the people in this room, some of the best resuscitationists out there, are doing the same course, are using the same protocols as the dermatologists. That's problematic. That's bothersome. And this is actually a good point that uh, you don't really think about that much. Uh, the docs that you see in the hospital are probably just as qualified to do a, uh, a code as a, a dermatologist in a, in a clinic. Uh, <clears throat> to my knowledge, there's not really a resuscitation class in med school. I mean, of course, you get all of your um, medical uh, education there, but I don't think anything really pertains to codes and the uh, uh, uniqueness that a lot of the codes provide. You know, you know your CPR and um, your ACLS algorithms, but that's pretty much it. Um, and I think there needs to be a course uh, specialized for uh, those docs that are actually in the hospital uh, and that deal with some of these more advanced uh, patients. We need truly advanced cardiac life support for us, for the resuscitationists, for the experts, for the ones who are not going to be bound by what's easily doable, but bound by what is absolutely best for the patient. So we'll talk about it. And I'd like to say this stuff is the future, but it's not. Almost everything I'm going to talk about in the next 15 minutes was discussed in an article in 1997 by this gentleman, Max Harry Weil. And uh, I'll, I'll give the link to this at the end. You should read it. He talks about everything that I think is the future of cardiac resuscitation. So let's go through this. Airway, patient comes in, cardiac arrest. They weren't able to intubate in the field. I just pop in an LMA because it's quick. I don't have to think about it. And now I have an airway and I have some time to assess the situation. But I no longer leave in the LMA. I no longer leave in the supraglottic airway. And last year we were talking about this study done in swine showing there's actually occlusion to carotid blood flow from some of these supraglottic airways. And it's being done in humans now, and we'll see how that turns out. But this is not the true reason I don't leave in the supraglottic airway anymore. What I've realized is that the ceiling pressure of these devices don't allow ventilations to occur during the downstroke of compression. They don't have enough ability to seal under those pressures. It means all your breaths are being given on the upstroke when you want to have your heart filling, when you want that venous return happening. And I haven't seen great studies on this, but I've seen enough to make me want to, when I have a moment, ask the airway doc to put a tube in. So he kind of hits on <clears throat> a couple of things here. And um, one thing that I've never really had any experience with is an LMA or a laryngeal mask uh, 
airway. So basically what that is, it's uh, it sits on top of the cords and it basically occludes the airway uh, such that uh, it creates a seal where you can provide ventilation without actually going past the cords, which is why he calls it a superglottic airway. Um, I've never had any experience with those. Uh, usually haven't had any problem with um, actually intubating uh, any of the patients that uh, I've come in contact with. And if we did, it would probably lead to um, a crike. Um, so I think this is mainly a uh, emergency room thing uh, that people do. But like he says, he's going straight to um, intubating now. Um, another thing is with the LMA, like he was saying, you, you can only give the breaths when you're doing an upstroke on the CPR, which is when you're letting uh, recoil. Um, and the whole reason that you want the chest to recoil is so that you can get that venous return so the heart can fill up with blood. But if you're giving positive pressure ventilation at that time, it's going to decrease the amount of venous return you have, thus, which is why um, he does not recommend LMAs anymore. And now, because of the new technologies, things like video laryngoscopy, things like the use of a bougie, there's absolutely no reason to stop compressions to make this happen. And in fact, uh, we've trained our folks to say, if the airway doc asks you to stop, ignore them. The only person allowed to stop compressions is the team leader. And this is a big point that he makes right here. Um, during a code, nobody should be able to stop compressions or the code itself, uh, except for the doc or the nurse leader who is actually leading the code at the time. Um, there's been many codes that I've been in where just random people, I don't even know who they are, uh, tell me to stop because they think that the patient uh, has a rhythm now or or something like that. There is, there's no reason for that to happen and it's completely unacceptable and it will lead to some uh, pauses in CPR that uh, cannot be tolerated uh, during an efficient code. So next time you have um, a code or something, it needs to be instilled in the people there that only the team leader can call when compressions are to be stopped. And that's that includes... Um, when there's pulse checks uh, and things like that, which I will get to later. There's actually no such thing as a pulse check. It's always a rhythm check. And then if you have a rhythm that can actually give you um, a pulse, then that's when you actually check for a pulse. And there is no indication to stop compressions for airway. And if I have to leave that superglottic, great. But to make it even easier, we've custom bent a fiber optic stylet to exactly fit into our particular laryngeal mask airways. And this slides down like butter. You get a view of the cords and pop the tube in. And now there's absolutely no reason to uh, hinder the resuscitation at all. And then, of course, the only acceptable means to confirm your tube during a cardiac arrest is continuous waveform end tidal CO2. And if you don't have it, and you don't have it during the entirety of the arrest, I think we're not doing as well as we could by the patient. So entitled CO2 is something that I actually um, haven't had any experience with as well. And that's something that I think really needs to be um, at every code, especially after listening to what he's had to say about it. So <clears throat> with uh, entitled CO2, you can do a couple of things. Um, you can monitor your 
compression um, quality with it. Uh, if you're getting good entitled CO2, then um, you know that's that's showing that there is circulation going on. That's showing that there is some gas exchange going on, and uh, that you're actually producing um, some good per, uh, compressions. What else it can do is it can show you um, if a patient is uh, achieving ROSC or return of uh, spontaneous circulation. If you all of a sudden have a spike in um, in your entitled CO2, that could mean that the patient now has a pulse that is perfusing. So it's something very valuable to do, and it can also check your position of your uh, ET tube while you're at it. So I don't understand why um, I've never witnessed it in a code myself in the multiple hospitals that I've been in, but it seems like it's something that should be a standard. So that's airway. Let's talk about breathing. So Cliff Reed and I, we did a podcast on this book, On Combat, and Rich has talked a bunch about this stuff as well in his talk. And what you realize is that when your heart rate is thrumming, when you're pounding, you have no time perception whatsoever, and you cannot be trusted to have a BVM in your hand. It should never happen during a cardiac arrest that someone has the bag. And yet in the States, our respiratory therapists are trained to immediately take the patient off the ventilator, and we fought against that. And in fact, when a cardiac arrest comes, they go right on to the mechanical ventilator, because this is a machine that's capable of doing what it needs to do, giving a set tidal volume and a set respiratory rate. But you have to do something special here. You have to raise the peak pressure limit on that vent, or else it will not give breaths during those compressions. And you're back to that same problem you were with, with the superglottic airways. So set your peak pressure limits high, and now let the machine do its work, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. And you have your entitle up there to confirm it's working. You set a low rate to not impede that venous return. Now, this is something actually really interesting, and um, I can see the merit behind it, but um, I can also see the uh, pitfalls with it as well just uh, kind of seeing myself in a code situation, everything kind of gets a little hectic, especially um, with RT if there's not um, a tube already placed. So I can see it being problematic uh, trying to re-educate RTs in uh, airway management and uh, breathing management um, if they're told to keep the patient on the ventilator. Because it's usually, like he said, it's usually you just you would normally just pop off the patient from the ventilator and um, start bagging yourself. But <clears throat> like he said, I can see how that could uh, cause some problems with um, rate and uh, venous return and stuff like that. Um, I think it would just be an issue of re-educating everybody. Because like he said, here in the States, um, it seems like every respiratory therapist is taught to take them off the ventilator and bag them. So um, while I think it's a good idea, I don't know if it's actually practical to re-educate um, in that sense. I mean, it kind of depends on if there's any studies that show the exact um, impact that it would have with these patients. And it, it might just be easier and uh, cause less of a delay in care if you just let them pop them off the ventilator and let them bag them. Because I know we have a lot of really good RTs where I work, and um, they they can stay pretty calm, and you know they see codes every day, so it's uh, not something that will actually get their heart rate up, like he's saying. Circulation. 
Quality compressions, very important. Timing of them is very important. I used to just recommend buying a $5 metronome and using that. I don't recommend that anymore, and I'll tell you why. So this is something that I've actually had to kind of uh, acclimate myself to, is not being afraid to speak up when somebody is doing poor compressions. And it happens a lot more than you think, especially if you uh, are on a floor that is not used to uh, having codes and they don't have that experience doing compressions. I can tell you the first time I did compressions, it was a very eye-opening experience because it is nothing like the dummies that you practice on. So with you know a real human, it, it especially with the floor that I'm on, we do cardiothoracic surgery. So a lot of these patients who have had cardiothoracic surgery in the past have had their uh, sternum cut open and then rewired shut. So you can imagine that that sternum is not going to be as compliant when you're doing compressions. So like I was saying, it's, uh, it, it takes a lot to actually compress the heart two inches like is uh, recommended. So if you see somebody who is not doing compressions correctly, you can first give them a verbal uh, cue to either uh, increase their depth or increase their rate or slow down their rate. And um, if that doesn't work, then you just need to kick them off and get somebody else on there because it is way more important to have uh, perfusing compressions than, uh, you know, hurting somebody's feelings. And I, I promise you they will get over it. Um, I've done it a couple of times now. And the people that know me know that I'm not a confrontational person, but um, I've had to kick off several people because they're not doing compressions correctly. I mean, you have they have machines now that do these compressions. So you have to understand that these compressions need to be perfect and they need to be efficient. So um, if someone kicks you off or gives you a verbal cue about your compressions, just learn from it. And um, now you've had your experience. And now when you come back next time, you'll be able to do it uh, correctly. And then what we found, and now we have proof from the reanalysis of the Rock Prime trial just published, is that peri-shock pauses are bad. You do not want any interruption at all in the time around your shocks. And even compression fraction is not nearly as important as this. You need to have continuous CPR all throughout the period of the patient being defibrillated if you want it to work successfully. Now, we have some new technologies that can make that happen. There are monitors now that allow uh, see-through analysis of the patient's rhythm while compressions are ongoing. So now you don't have to do rhythm checks. You could just continue and look up at the screen and see your ventricular fibrillation. That eliminates the peri-shock pause. Now, this is going to be another one that's going to be really hard for people to kind of grasp. Um, so if you've ever been in a situation where a uh, shock was needed during a code, you'd know that most of the time after you shock, a lot of people will... Um, just stare at the monitor and see if it fixed it or not. And <clears throat> that's something that you really do not want to do because you just you want to continue compressions. If it worked, great, we'll figure it out in the next uh, rhythm check. But um, if not, then we're still perfusing. So that 30 seconds or whatever it takes for people to determine if the shock actually did affect the rhythm or not is a valuable time that uh, the patient is not being perfused. So this is very important, but the next thing he says is kind of ridiculous. So just listen to this. And then you don't want to have to stop the compressions during the shock itself. And now there was an article published in 2008 saying maybe hands-on defibrillation is okay. 
And then in 2012, there was another article saying, maybe it's not. And that if you're feeling a little tingling as you're doing compressions, that actually means you're part of a current circuit that may lead to your heart stopping. Now, I didn't know what to do with this. So for six months, I was the only person when I was in the department allowed to have my hands on the patient when we shocked. And I took, I think, 22 shocks um, to see how it was. And it was a little tingle, no problem. Um, until the 23rd, when I felt an uh, enormous jolt of electricity move up my entire arm, and it was numb for about 40 minutes. And then we said, maybe it's not the best idea to do hands-on defibrillation. So yeah, I don't, I don't know about having your hands um, on the patient during the shock, but it is pretty interesting. Uh, the implications are actually pretty interesting as well. Uh, the fact that he was able to do that 22 times before he actually felt a uh, major shock is actually pretty incredible, um, knowing how much energy actually goes into the patient to uh, attempt to restart the heart. So um, I don't really see this coming into practice in other venues. Um, I think it's pretty ridiculous to be honest. And, um, I think with what he's about to say is a little more, um, applicable to, uh, hospital settings. So, uh, just listen to what he has to say next. And I think this is something that everyone should follow from here on out. Um, so now we just, if we, uh, have to, uh, use hands, which is less than desirable, as I'll talk about in a second. We just, uh, we don't do that, I'm clear, you're clear, we're all clear garbage. No. When the person's ready to shock, we say, all right, ready to shock, and you lift up your hands one inch off the chest, you shock, and then you immediately put them back down. And that's how we've taken care of this problem. So the gloves won't protect you, take your hands off, but none of this was a good solution. This is the good solution. Mechanical CPR is the way of the future, and I have absolutely no mortality benefit to show that. And we have three trials right now showing that these devices don't cause the patient to leave the hospital uh, with a higher rate. They don't leave neurologically intact. Another one was just published yesterday in the JAMA. You're not going to have this be better than good quality CPR, but what you are going to have is a dramatic change in the atmosphere during a cardiac arrest. All of a sudden, you don't need seven people there in a line ready to trade off compressions. You put the machine on, and you just continue it throughout. You could see your rhythm through the compressions. You could shock with this device on. This is the future. I would spend more time talking about this, except Steve Bernard is coming to talk about this exact topic. So I'm simply going to say, I think in the future, this will be the way we are doing cardiac arrest. I agree with him here. I think it's still pretty um, insane that we do manual uh, compressions with all the technology that we have now, uh, a code setting is very hectic. And like he said, having uh, five to seven people in a line to do CPR is uh, just ridiculous. Um, I had to do CPR down in the cath lab one time. And it's just insane how, um, how hard it is, especially with the angle and everything with the, uh, uh, you know, with the x-ray machine and uh, all that stuff going on is it to be able to do um high quality cpr it's just it's almost impossible so having something that can take the human element out of that and you can ensure that you're getting good compressions is something that i think is really important um, plus it will um allow you to decrease the amount of people in the room uh, I know since I'm at a teaching facility right now, we get all the med students and residents in the room. And if they're just standing there, we tell them to get in line for um, compressions. 
And um, if that is taken out, we could just have them stand outside the room because I feel like uh, the, the room that the code is going on, it should be quiet, um, almost like someone's putting in a central line or something. There's no need for shouting um, or anything like that. And the, the, the less people in the room, the less chance of that happening. So I think with what he said, I, I agree with him. Uh, I think this is the future having something like the Lucas, um, to do compressions for you. It's just a matter of getting the hospitals on board and, um, actually having one available at all times for, uh, you know, codes that just happen on the floor. And then if you have one of these devices and the patient has the ability, uh, they either code it in front of you or you had a second to get a 12 lead and they have a STEMI, they have to go to the lab with CPR ongoing because they're going to benefit. The sooner they get that vessel open, the better they're going to do. And it's possible and it's studied and it's something we have to start implementing in our cardiac arrest centers. All right, let's talk about drugs. I'm still a believer in epinephrine. There's doubters out there. The pocket trial when you really look at it and you know the backstory of what happened, to me, looks like it would have been a positive trial. This would have been the one. And unfortunately, because of truly evil recruitment issues, they weren't able to get their folks. But I think this was the study that actually showed it, that epi would work, but not the way ACLS is telling you to dose it. And I think that's where all the problems come from. And I'll come back to that in just a sec. If you believe in epi, if you're still giving it, even if you don't believe in it, then I feel you also should be giving vasopressin and steroids because this is a far higher level of evidence than anything we've had for drugs in ACLS. This is not one randomized controlled trial of adding vasopressin and solumedrol to epinephrine. They actually did two randomized controlled trials and both of them showed neurologically intact survival at a higher rate if you add vasopressin and steroids to your epinephrine. So if you're giving any drugs at all, I think you should be doing this. If you're a true nihilist and you're not giving any, fine. That's not really something I could argue based on the evidence. But I'm doing it. Now where's the face validity? Dan Davis in San Diego is looking at this. And what it turns out is epinephrine is good for getting ROSC. It's good for back perfusion to the coronaries. Vasopressin is good for the brain. Vasopressin is what's going to lead to cerebral perfusion. And they work differently. And they might benefit the patient by having both. And it turns out the steroids are synergistic with the vasopressin. And that's why that may have face validity. But I'm doing this until we have better evidence than two randomized controlled trials. This is something that I had actually never heard of before. Like I've heard of giving vasopressin and I knew it was kind of like an older drug to give during a, a code and kind of like a last resort. Um, but I had never heard about giving it uh, with a steroid like solumedrol for cerebral perfusion. But it makes sense uh, to give with epi because you want perfusion to the heart, but you also want perfusion to the brain because, you know, what's the point of uh, attaining ROS if uh, you have no perfusion to the brain and uh, you don't have a neurologically intact patient at the end of this uh, whole thing? So um, this is actually pretty neat. And um, coincidentally, this, uh, I, a after I, heard this talk for the first time 
Um, I witnessed this being done in our hospital, which I'm actually really proud of. Um, and um, everybody was wondering why the doc wanted to give vasopressin and solumedrol. And um, it's really cool that we have some docs that are actually staying on top of the research. And um, the pharmacist was there able to um, understand what the doctor was talking about and was able to dose appropriately. So um, I think we gave several doses of vasopressin and solumedrol during that code. Um, ended up attaining ROSC. And um, unfortunately, I actually went on PTO afterwards, so I have no idea how that patient ended up doing. But um, it was very interesting and um, hopefully something that I hope uh, catches on. So um, we will see how that goes. But like I said, uh, this is one of the... Um, offshoots of ACLS that, you know, is not directly a part of the algorithm. Um, but this is what we need to start doing. We need to start thinking outside the box and uh, coming up with creative methods like this that are uh, studied and that have research behind them. Because uh, I think that's how we're going to improve our um, patient outcomes with these codes. Esmolol. Steve Smith, who's probably somewhere in the audience right now, uh, put this abstract here at SMAC. Refractory VF. Counterintuitively, the drug you want to reach for is probably going to turn out to be Esmolol to knock out the beta. Epi brings beta and alpha-2 to the table. We don't actually want that beta. And the patient has an endogenous sympathetic storming as well in the peri-arrest period. Esmolol may be the solution for refractory VF. I'm doing it in patients with pulse when I can't break them of their uh, ventricular tachycardia. And now, if I've gone down into a rest pathway and I can't shock them out of their V-fib, I reach for Esmolol. Same dose you'd give for SVT. It's cutting edge, but if you can't make things work with the standard therapy, this is what I'd go to. Uh, I honestly don't think I've ever given a beta blocker during a code, but it is uh, interesting and it makes sense what he's saying. Uh, you want to cut out that beta one uh, receptor. So I would like to try this. Um, you don't see a whole lot of refractory VF. Uh, I feel like it's pretty rare, um, but you do see a lot of uh, pulseless VTAC uh, and the likes of that. So, um, Maybe it's something to um, suggest next time you're in a similar situation and see um, if maybe that helps uh, get the person out of that, that rhythm. Uh, see if maybe you can get ROSC that way and actually get a uh, perfusing rhythm instead of whatever, whatever rhythm you have that is uh, not perfusing uh, because of this uh, beta-1 stimulation. Now, this is not quite ready for prime time, but this was the first abstract in humans published by Keith Laurie and uh, the Yiannopoulos group uh, and Hennepin. And nitroprusside may be the microcirculatory resuscitation for cardiac arrest. And this was just a case series. It's not at the point where I'd recommend you guys start doing it yet, but look for this in the future when you're looking for the next new drug that may help. Let's talk about monitoring. I put a femoral arterial line in every single cardiac arrest without stopping compressions because it's incredibly beneficial to not have to do pulse checks. But more importantly, this is the way I dose my epi. I don't give epi every three to five minutes. It makes no sense and it probably contributes to post-cardiac arrest cardiomyopathy. Instead, I dose my epinephrine based on the patient's diastolic blood pressure 
during compressions. So I think this is one of the main points that uh, I think this talk kind of gets across. And I agree with him. I think everybody needs, everybody that codes needs a femoral A-line. Um, now, a lot of people will go for the radial, and that's kind of controversial because uh, with the amount of epi given and all that, you have your vasoconstriction, and there's a lot of uh, controversy if your blood pressure is actually going to be accurate in such a small vessel like that. So, um, and I feel like it's pretty easy to get a femoral A-line. Um, it's pretty far away from where compressions are going on. So one of your secondary docs can be doing that and there's no reason not to. And your nurses should be trained that whenever a code is happening and it's legit, they need to start setting up for an A-line. It should just be automatic. Um, even if this patient gets rost um, pretty early on, they're still going to need an A-line. You know, if it's a patient that's on the floor, they're going to be transferred to ICU. Um, I can guarantee you these patients are probably going to need some kind of presser uh, post-arrest. So why not just put in the A-line and why not just get, you know, started putting in the A-line right then and there. But uh, what he's about to talk about with dosing the epi, I think is very important. Um, it's something that I've wanted to incorporate into uh, my floor and my practice because you see all these people will give epi, will give epi every three minutes, like on the dot. And when you do get ROSC, their blood pressure is 250 over 110. And it's just ridiculous. And you're, you're overdosing your epi so much. But if you are looking at your diastolic pressure and getting your um, coronary perfusion pressure adequately, then that's all you need. And there's no reason to give more epi. Epi isn't some magical potion that just brings people to life. It's a presser and it does what it's meant to do. Now we have evidence for this, and I'll put all these slides up on uh, my site. But you're looking for a minimal coronary perfusion pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury. And lacking that, the patient will not come back, they will not get VF, and they will not be able to be shocked out of it. Now, we're not monitoring CVP, so you can't just guess at what the coronary perfusion pressure is. But generally, the CVP will hover around 25 or 30. So when you add that CVP to what the coronary perfusion pressure you want, a diastolic blood pressure of around 40 is my goal during a cardiac arrest. And I look up at that A-line tracing, and if with those compressions they have a diastolic greater than 40, they don't need another round of epi. And if they don't, that's when they get the drug. And this makes a ton of sense, and it was talked about in 1997 by Max Harry Weil. Why are we not doing it? Because you can't have an ACLS course that asks people to place arterial lines in the middle of an arrest. But we could do it. So the formula that I'm used to for uh, coronary perfusion pressure uh, usually involves diastolic pressure minus your wedge pressure. So uh, I don't know if he's just extrapolating the CVP from the wedge pressure, because of course you're not going to get a wedge during CPR. Um, but... I don't think it really matters because I, I'm guessing that the, um, the pressures in the heart are going to kind of equalize, uh, with, without any movement going on, uh, in the heart. So, um, I, I still agree with what he's saying to keep a diastolic of 40, um, and to dose your epi that way. Um, like he's saying, if, if your diastolic with compressions is, uh, 
less than 40, then go ahead and give the epi. But if not, I don't think they need it. And um, it, you're going to need something else. Uh, but like I said before, I feel like we are overdosing our epi, especially with our cardiac patients. And I think it's really inappropriate. And uh, with all this uh, research, I feel like we could be doing better by the patient um, by actually using this data um, and actually using the A-line. There's uh, so many times that people, they just don't even look at the A-line. Um, you can get so much information from it. Uh, not only this, what he's talking about with the epidosing, but you can get a pulse from it. Like if you have pulsatile waves on your A-line during a rhythm check, you have a pulse and there's no reason to continue guessing. Um, you actually have a catheter in the vessel that's giving you a pulsatile rhythm. So I don't, I don't understand why people don't look at it more or go to it first, but I think it's something that needs to change in the culture. Waveform and title, it's not just a marker for the ET tube, though those tubes have a tendency to fall out sometimes, and you want to know that pretty quick. But it also is a marker of perfusion. It tells me how my compressions are going. It tells me when the patient gets ROSC. If you see that end title spike up by 10, the patient probably came back. They probably have a perfusing rhythm now. And then the last part of monitoring is you need to do an early ultrasound to look for reversible causes. I do the rush exam, rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension. High map, we look at the heart, the IVC, we look at the Morrisons and other abdominal views, the aorta, and we look for pneumothoraces. We want to find reversible causes. But the future is that that transthoracic probe is not going to be the way we do it. We already kind of talked about uh, the entitled CO2 earlier, uh, but it is very important. And I'm actively trying to get, um, get it in our uh, unit. So we'll see how that goes. But um, also the ultrasound needs to be in the room of any code. Um, there's no reason uh, for it not to be, and you're most likely going to use it. So um, I've had times where I ask if they want me to bring the ultrasound in and some people will look at me like I'm crazy, but you know what? Five minutes later, they want the ultrasound. So uh, just bring it in, just have it available because it's going to be used if your if your code um, lasts more than I'd say five minutes. These patients need transesophageal echo, intra-arrest. If you really want to get a good shot of that heart, if you really want to know what's going on, Mike Blavis in the states has done the preliminary work on this. It's eminently doable. My friend Rob Arnfeld is doing a study right now demonstrating a one-hour course is sufficient to get ED docs and intensivists up to speed to be able to do transesophageal echo for the sole purpose of monitoring a resuscitation like this. It's easier than the transthoracic, and we know how to stick things in the patient's mouths. Right, Rich? Yeah. So, <laughs> let's talk human factors. Code should be quiet, just as Karim alluded to. It should be a totally seamless environment. Everyone should know their role, everyone should know what they're doing, and there shouldn't be any noise. And now when you get the compressors out of the room, and when you get the grunting person pushing on the chest, and you have a machine instead, that becomes possible. And now you have a cognitive environment where you could actually perform at your highest level. I already talked about this, but um, I think it's just, it's important to reiterate how um, how necessary it is for there to be a quiet environment. How 
Are you going to think about ways to treat the patient if uh, you have all this chaos going on around you? There is no reason for chaos to be going on. There's no reason for yelling. Um, if people are talking, you know, just quietly shush them. But, you know, if they're in the corner of the room and talking, they don't need to be in the room at all. So um, if you are the charge nurse or a nurse leader, you need to get them out of the room um, and only have necessary personnel in the um, in the room at the time. So uh, with that, you need to make sure your nurses are trained to uh, take up the necessary roles. Uh, that includes things like recorder, uh, your medication nurse, your uh, defib nurse, your nurse leader, uh, compressors, um, airway if you don't have RT yet, um, just things like that. It needs to be instilled in your nurses' brains that um, everyone needs to get their part, and if they don't have a part, they need to get out. Um, so that's really important, and I think just reiterating it um, is something that needs to be done. And then we like to add some music in as well. Uh, we made a smack uh, resuscitation playlist that you can find on the site, mcrit.org slash smack. Uh, I like the Rolling Stones personally during my arrest. And then let's talk about the most exciting thing that's been going on in the world of cardiac arrest resuscitation. eCPR, ECMO CPR, the ability to crash a patient onto full cardiopulmonary support in the midst of the arrest. Folks like Steve Bernard with the CHEER trial, my friends Joe Palezzo and Zach Shiner out in San Diego, and a host of other places are starting programs to be able to have intensivists or ED docs place patients on ECMO during the arrest. And this is within our skill set. It's what I've spent the past year training in. It's totally doable for any of us that are doing invasive procedures already. So I think this really is the future. Um, putting people who have uh, gone through cardiac arrest on ECMO is, uh, I think it's going to be a game changer and I think it's going to improve survivability. Um, just taking over the cardiopulmonary functions of the body and just letting the body heal, um, I think is going to uh, produce better patient outcomes. And why not do it? If you're capable of doing it, why not do it? Um, I've listened to some of his other podcasts and, um, you know, it's not, it's not expensive. It's not inexpensive, but at the same time, uh, from a business standpoint, there's so much money to be made by the hospitals that do this. So I don't understand why it's not being done. Um, I think it will be more prominent in the future. And um, with that, I think we're going to have to train our nurses a little bit more on ECMO um, and uh, make that a normal thing for them to take. Right now, um, it's kind of like this mysterious thing. It's just, uh, at least where I work, uh, it might be a little bit better in actual centers that do it regularly, but uh, we only do it when we can't uh, take patients off of bypass after surgery. So um, I think this is the future, and um, I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. We have a website that's devoted to this that will discuss this in far greater detail, edecmo.org. Please come over and check us out and find out why we think this is going to be the future of a viable patient who's not had a prolonged time until they started their CPR to be able to get them to somewhere to reverse the cause of their arrest. And what we're finding with this eCPR work is the time to CPR and pre-morbid state is all that matters. How quickly 
compressions were started after they arrested, and what the patient was like beforehand. And the actual time of the code itself is becoming irrelevant. We are having discussions of saves 120 minutes of compressions, and the patient leaves the hospital neurologically intact. And it's not just a one in a million case. Every program that started this has these patients leaving the hospital with insanely long cardiac arrest time. This is changing the parameters of what we could expect out of cardiac arrest. So we're finally at the point, I think, where we truly can bring back the hearts that are too good to die. And I'm done with nihilism. I'm open-minded again about cardiac arrest. And I don't believe it could be cookbook medicine. And I don't believe the skin doctors could do the same job on a cardiac arrest that we can. So let's do cardiac arrest resuscitation by resuscitationists. Let's rewrite the books. And with that, I thank you so much for your attention. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, I hope this talk uh, struck you like it struck me. Um, and I hope this really helps uh, get people thinking about uh, cardiac arrest management and that we don't have to just go by the algorithm and, well, at least I have to go by the algorithm, but your docs don't have to go by the algorithm and they can actually think outside the box and um, we can uh, see if we can get some of these patients uh, out of the hospital who um, previously were not able to. So um, once again, if y'all have any suggestions for episodes or um, have any feedback, please let me know. I know this is the first episode in a long time, so I apologize for that. It's going to be more regular uh, in the future, but um, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to y'all later. Bye.